0: Russia's war on Ukraine.
1: It's difficult to see
2: an ending to this, a day number.
0: U.S. foreign policy.
2: Israel occupies a speck on the map of the world, but a continent in the American mind.
0: You're listening to Policy, Guns & Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. One year on from Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine... David Rowe speaks to Professor Paul Dibb about the trajectory of the war, Putin's calculations, and the longevity of support from the West. They also discuss the implications of Russia's suspension of the New START Treaty and the Russia-China relationship.
3: Thanks for joining us. I'm David Rowe, and I'm here today with Paul Dibb. Paul is an Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University, has held a number of senior roles, including Deputy Secretary of Defence and Director of the Joint Intelligence Organisation, and he is one of Australia's most distinguished defence and strategic experts. He has decades of experience looking at Russia's military and strategic approach. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Let's just look backwards uh, to a year ago. Most people thought Russia would take Ukraine, Uh, Kiev would fall quickly. We're now a year on. There's a lot of uncertainty about how this plays out. Can you give us your broad overview of the current trajectory and what factors you find most compelling?
1: Yeah. And by the way, I was one of those who got the invasion wrong. I remember saying to my wife, who used to work with me in defence, three days, the Russians were being careful. And I wasn't alone. The chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff in a closed session of Congress said that. It shows, by the way, and we need to think about this, if we can get the Russian military so wrong despite modern intelligence methods, can the same problem occur with China? Because they're quite similar in terms of conscripts, rotten logistics, and corrupt defense industry. The Chinese are. It's worth thinking about. Look, where we are now is, it's difficult to see an ending to this, a denouement. no um, Some people are talking about uh, Zelensky must win. I need to come back to that because... You cannot decisively win over a country with 1,500 strategic nuclear warheads and 4,500 more in reserve. Um, the other one is that Putin will win. Well, that would be an absolute disaster which we need to explore, by the way, for the balance of power in Europe and for the future of Europe as a cohesive political, geopolitical entity. Both Zelensky and Putin have red lines over which they will not want to cross. Zelensky is he wants the occupiers, a phrase he used quite correctly, totally out of Ukraine. I understand that. My view is very firmly that Putin will not deliver on getting out of Crimea, and we can t- discuss the reasons for that. Putin's red line he announced over a year ago when he got his foreign ministry to write an international agreement in very formal United Nations type language in which It was proposed that NATO, led by America, would commit itself to never, ever allowing Ukraine to be a member of NATO. Well, you and I know America and NATO ain't going to do that. So my bottom line is, this is a standoff. I'd like to say there's a resolution. I can't see a negotiated one. How does Putin negotiate with somebody who represents a country that, quote, does not exist, unquote? Mm? Um, and how does Zelensky negotiate with a man who's created such extreme human rights abuses, you know, torture, rape? So it, we're in, I
3: think we're in for a prolonged period of standoff. One of the big questions, of course, is international commitment to continuing to support Ukraine and, if necessary, escalate that support uh, so that Ukraine cannot just uh, keep fighting but prevail and taking into account everything you've said about the obstacles to that happening, yeah. that still needs to be the objective, presumably for supporters of Ukraine. So what do we know at the moment? What have you managed to read into the firmness of international commitment, mm. uh, to Ukraine? What did we learn? Do you think from, uh, Biden's visit, how, how symbolically significant was that mm. and what do you think? The international community's preparedness is to escalate the support, if necessary, including allowing Ukraine to actually strike into Russia.
1: Look, the continuing uh, NATO support of Ukraine is crucial. Crucial, Ukraine cannot fight this war by itself. And unlike Russia, um, it doesn't have a massive industrial, defense industrial base to resupply. You've seen how careful Biden in particular has been about tanks, fighter aircraft still remain a no-no. And that's about him seeking to send signals to Vladimir Putin that we're not going to be allowing the Ukrainians to strike deeply into your territory. Having said that, without American assistance, the Ukrainians, I think it was just before Christmas, struck the Engels strategic nuclear bomber base about 300 kilometers from Moscow, a place called Saratov. You can see why America, who is playing a very sensitive game, is controlling the reach of weapons. Having said that, you've seen how brilliantly successful and impressive are American weapon systems like HIMARS, you know, the very sophisticated long-range artillery system with a range for the Ukrainians, I think of something like 150 kilometers. I think the version we're getting, and I stand corrected on this, is a minimum of 500 kilometers. And you've seen how inaccurate and lousy the Russian systems have been, and how overwhelmingly impressive the American ones have been. And I do hope Xi Jinping is taking notice. Your question about Biden and Kiev You've got to admire the secrecy with which the Americans did that. We were, most of us, gobsmacked. My understanding is it was held in a very tight group of people in, you know, uh, state, the White House, and the Pentagon. And some several hours before Biden's plane took off, Washington advised Moscow, our president is going to be visiting Kiev. In other words, watch yourself. The newspapers say that. The Americans put an AWACS in an early warning system above Ukraine as the president was flying in to Warsaw, by the way, and then this 80-year-old president had to, work, had to be in a train for 10 hours. I mean, look, there's a lot of criticism about him, and he, he can look, and he and I are not dissimilar ages. When he bounces onto the stage and pretends to run, you think, don't do that, you're going to fall. And it, it can be quite... I don't know, he's not sort of losing it, but he's gentle, excessively so. But you've just heard him say two vital things yesterday in Warsaw with the group of nine East European former members of the Warsaw Pact aligning together against Russia. He, He said, in answer to a question, that as far as he was concerned, Article 5 of NATO which is an attack on one, is an attack on all. By the way, we have no such article in the ANZUS Treaty. Mm -hmm. Article 5 of NATO said the president of the United States is a sacred commitment of the United States. And he repeated that sacred commitment. Well, hey, if that doesn't send a signal to Putin, what will? And then later on, Biden said in the same speech, we will not sacrifice one inch of NATO territory. Now, these are very precise markers. And he was obviously not doing it off the cuff. Mm. And that must cause
3: Putin to think more than twice, Mm. I would hope. Do you think Putin can still plausibly believe, at least in his own mind, that Western commitment will eventually fade and crumble because the West is fundamentally weak and uncertain and all the rest of it? Or, I mean, because that really is Putin's only way out of this, isn't it? It, It's that eventually international commitment erodes. Um, Can he still remotely count on that?
1: And he wants to see a climb down by Zelensky and some sort of, I was going to say negotiated agreement, but again, I just find that impossible to pin down. Look, getting inside Putin's mind is no easy task. I mean, when I was in the intel game in the Cold War, the Americans, you know, used to write top-secret code word documents, which we had access to in Canberra, saying the view of the Soviet leadership is... And there was a particular episode in 1983 when um, the Americans nearly miscalculated just how seriously the Soviets thought a surprise nuclear attack would be, it's to do with Abel Archer and NATO exercise in 83. Um, it was so bad that three years later, PIFIAB, the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, wrote a damning report that said the CIA did not warn you that the chairman of the Communist Party, Andropov, former KGB head, actually believed that in 83 there would be a surprise disarming American nuclear attack. And you CIA people wrote things like, our view is that the Soviet leadership does not think like that at all. Question mark, said the Pivyap, how do you know you had no agents inside the Kremlin? Now, at least with the Soviet period, there was a politburo. You and I would call it a cabinet. Putin does not have a politburo of ministerial advisers He is the Tsar of all the Russias and is increasingly, if you notice, isolated, including physically. Mm -hmm. You remember the long table meeting with Macron? Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether it's getting through to him at all. His most recent speech yesterday in Moscow on the eve of the anniversary of the invasion is not worth reading, by the way. It's 20 pages. He raves on about the weaknesses of the West and he quotes the LBGT stuff. He, he quotes that the Church of England uh, wants to nominate genders for God, and he said, dear God, please forgive them. And you've got to remember he also plays the Russian Orthodox theme. He has his own patriarch. This is a man who was a KGB lieutenant colonel who had to be an atheist. So he's quite capable of doing what we used to call lateral arabesques, mm-hmm. Changing hundred and eighty. So the answer to your question is: I don't know whether it's getting into his mind, or whether he actually does believe that the West is decrepit and rotten.
3: That, that's all presumably very domestically focused, right? Yes. I mean, he's basically saying to Russians: the West is yes, yes, yeah. it's, it's aren't you lucky
1: it's, to be with me?
3: Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I just want to return for a moment to something you were saying before about U.S. supplies of weapons to date. Are you suggesting, do you think that they are currently giving Ukraine sort of just enough to, uh, to, to push back on Russia without going too far? And, and, and what's, the, what's the possible trigger for Americans sort of removing that restraint? Yeah.
1: The answer is yes, I do think the Americans are deliberately manipulating this. That must be hard for Zelensky to swallow, and he showed some irritation. The issue is the obvious one. It's the one that I mentioned earlier. You have commentators here in Australia saying, we, meaning the West, we need to see Russia decisively defeated. I come back to. When you've got that number of strategic nuclear warheads, and there's no doubt in my mind, uh, and this is not been soft on Putin, but if he's cornered and humiliated by, for instance, the capacity of... Uh, Ukraine to strike Moscow, for argument's sake. It's only about 400 kilometers from the northern border of Ukraine to Moscow. He might, he might just pull the house of cards down. Now, we've got to be careful not to be blackmailed by him. But, see, Kissinger, uh, and he's still a man I admire, he's, he's even older than me, has said quite recently, there must be a way out for Ukraine in this, and there must be a way out or Russia, and my view is, you cannot pretend that Russia will disappear. Europe is going to have to deal with a damaged, weakened Russia, in my personal view, or an even more angry uh, Russia. And that is going to be a hard one for the Europeans to swallow. Finally, coming back to the spy of weapons, America's rock solid on this, so is Warsaw, Um, Poland, a member of NATO, so is the UK, but just have a look at where the Germans and the French are. Macron comes this one about there has to be a future for Russia, but he seems to be, you know, wavering. And as for the Germans, they've come a long way, which I admire. They're going to double their defense expenditure, just like Japan. Um, But you've seen how they drag their feet on tanks. And Germany, you know, in the Cold War had the reputation of being the weak link because it was fundamentally infiltrated by Soviet agents.
3: That very exquisite balance between not pushing Putin into a corner where he might do something unthinkable, but not allowing ourselves to be blackmailed either... Um, I mean, that that really is, that goes to the heart of strategic thinking and all of the imponderables associated with it. But I mean, do you have any guidance, any thoughts on how to manage that very delicate balance so that we get to the right point where neither of those things happen?
1: Look, even I have uh, some limitations on this one. Um, You know, in the last 12 months, I've virtually done nothing else but Russia and Ukraine. And by the way, thanks to Aspie with your brilliant speed of publication. You're much better than the academics. Excellent report. Timeliness is of the issue on this. I fear that this might unravel really badly. I don't want to play the woe and doom thing. You know, you'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan. But you've seen that the nuclear scientists of, with the atomic clock have now put it to something like three seconds before midnight which they claim is the worst it's ever been and I can't remember whether it was still in being in 62 and the Cuban Missile Crisis. I just can't remember that. But any case, I do remember in the Cold War where things got bad in 1983, you know, first nuclear strike. Um, So they're saying this is extremely dangerous. Putin is playing the nuclear thing like a violin. Unlike America, he's got a couple of thousand tactical nuclear warheads. The Americans have 280, mainly on airplanes. He's got artillery shells that are tactical nuclear. He's got torpedoes. He's got landmines. Now, the big question, if I might be a bit cynical, is what happens if they don't explode? Because the rest of his military is fairly crap. Hmm? It really is. Uh, And we've got it wrong. So I think the bottom line is, to try and answer your question, I think they're going to stumble through another year of high-intensity, brutal, conventional war, and there is no end in sight for any negotiated solution. And in the meantime, Putin is playing with fire with things like suspending the new START agreement for strategic nuclear weapons.
3: Can you just um, give us your thoughts on the significance of that? By the way, the idea of a... uh... Of an unexploding uh, nuclear strike that doesn't go off—that's a whole different level of like in-between grayness, isn't it? It's—I uh, don't know how do we how do we respond to that. But anyway, your your thoughts on New Start and um, yeah, uh,
1: and the significance of look. I spent nearly two decades of my life uh, in defence, being in charge towards the last five or so years of defence policy on Pine Gap and another joint facility near Woomera called Narunga as well as our Joint American uh, Submarine Communication Facility. But the prize one was Pine Gap. I had that clearance for 13 years, half of that as a professor at the ANU. It is one of the most tightly held secrets we have. Even in America, at the height of the Cold War, people got the product, but they didn't know where it had come from. We used to negotiate at the level of Director CIA, Director NSA, Director DIA, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Deputy Secretary of State. It was really good stuff. I miss it. Pine Gap helps the Americans to be confident that there will be no surprise nuclear warning from the Soviet Union because Pine Gap gazes at Russian ballistic missile silos, can detect their launch can detect the telemetry and therefore come to a judgment about target and impact point and the size of the warhead. Narunga, which has now been associated into Pine Gap, is an infrared device that detects the plume of the ICBM as soon as it's lit. And so, as we explained in the 87 white paper, we have full knowledge and concurrence of what goes on in Pine Gap. There's a lot of talk about sovereignty right now, is there not? Well, we we negotiated that in 87, full knowledge and concurrence. It's vital to America's confidence of early warning. Early warning means with an ICBM, you've got about 40 minutes, if you're lucky. With a submarine-launched ballistic missile, it depends upon how close in you are. But that's, you know, you're talking of tens of minutes. What we've seen dismantled in recent years, Now, I won't go into the ins and outs, and whose fault it was is, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty was cancelled. The Theater Nuclear Forces Agreement in Europe, Intermediate Nuclear Forces, was cancelled. By the way, the Soviets had to destroy 1,800 Theater Nuclear Missiles for that agreement. That's cancelled. The Open Skies Agreement is cancelled. And now we've seen Russia suspend, not cancel, the only international counting rules game that we've got. And it is a very serious thing, because the Russians for the last two or three years with COVID have used that as an excuse not to allow American intrusive inspections under New START. Intrusive inspections means going to the silo sites, going to the factory and count the number of missiles being made. It is that important. We're now in a situation, and I don't want to be melodramatic, that is the worst situation i've been in since the very height of the cold war and who would have thought we'd have come to this
3: the, the latest suspension is he using that as part of his maneuvering on ukraine how does it actually relate do you think to his positioning His maneuvering and using
1: classic kgb activities desinformatia. you need to translate it and put the pressure on the americans but you've seen how biden has responded in a way that Putin could not have foreseen. In Kiev itself, with all the potential dangers that implied, and the commitment to NATO, Article 5, and so on.
3: I'll ask one last question. That relates to the relationship between Russia and China. We've had Wang Yi visit uh, Moscow, I think, overnight, Mm. uh, and Putin talking about that. We're expecting a a visit from Xi Jinping to, uh, to Moscow as well. You wrote uh, in the report that you did for ASPE last year that, uh, you know, that this is one of the most uh, troubling implications of, um, uh, of the, the, the current sort of international trajectory. What's your sort of update on the way that relationship is progressing and what would be the implications of China's supplying uh, Russia with advanced weaponry at this point in the conflict? Yeah.
1: I think I wrote for ASPE when I wrote that paper on the Russia's relations with China that it is a de facto alliance. It isn't NATO, it's not that, not, not that sort of commitment. But you know, a lot of people, particularly in Europe, underrated it, and in this country. I mean, what brings them together? One is a communist country, one is a former communist country. They're both autocracies with very strong, domineering leaders, totally in control. They both hate the West, they both believe the West historically, undermine them they believe that now is the time to move particularly xi jinping says we were humiliated in the 19th century you know the Opium wars it time is now on china's side it is china's time to maneuver and he says that in relation to taiwan which for us by the way when push comes to shove dare i say it for australia is more important than ukraine They met the pair of them, do you remember, last year, just before the invasion. And we still don't know whether Putin advised Xi Jinping. You would have thought so, given the closeness. I mean, they're doing very close joint military exercises together. They're rendezvousing nuclear strategic bombers over the East China Sea and loitering over both Taiwan and Japan. And to answer your question about arms supplies, so far it's been the other way around. So traditionally, the Russians have supplied advanced fighter aircraft like the Sukhoi 35, the modern, quiet, on Russian standards, but not on ours, relatively quiet conventional submarines, Um, the world's, perhaps one of the world's most advanced air defense systems, and the Russians have been building a ballistic missile early warning radar for the Chinese. That's serious stuff. But now we're getting uh, the Secretary of State saying, Very carefully, they have, Americans have evidence. And now I haven't seen that. And there's a limit to what China can usefully supply in my view because a lot of their kit, while some of it is, we think, is impressive, has been built on Russian designs. So I would have thought one of the most important things, as parochial as it is, is artillery shells, drones, and tactical missiles. And the Chinese can make lots of those and have got big production lines. Now, will that totally change the balance? No, it won't, as long as the West, which is struggling, as you know, to keep up the supply of tens of thousands of artillery shells. I saw something that said the Ukrainians are using 7,000 artillery shells a day. You're nodding your head. Well, if that's true, uh, that you know, the, the anti-tank missiles Javelin has... That they've supplied to Ukraine, the Americans have lost half their stockpile. So, how much longer can this go on, from the West point of view? Yeah,
3: but it gives it gives the Russians a, an extra degree of bottomlessness to their industrial. I mean, beyond their own industrial base. It yes, it does. Like a practical effect.
1: And we mustn't underrate this Chinese relationship. Final words. In addition, with the sort of stuff that you have articulated that the Russians have supplied to China. We, may, we, the Australian ADF, may face Sukhoi 35s, Kilo-class submarines, and the S-300 air defence system in the South China Sea.
3: You've finished on a high point there, Paul. Um, look, there's 30 more questions and uh, two <laughs> hours' worth of talking that I could do, but um, we'll have to have you back on again soon. And uh, I'm sure our, our listeners will look forward to that. Thanks for joining the podcast.
1: My pleasure.
0: Next up, Dr Alex Bristow speaks to Walter Russell Mead about the current US approach to foreign policy... Where Australia sits on the list of US priorities, and US thinking around Russia's war in Ukraine.
4: Walter, thanks very much for coming into ASPI. Uh, I understand this isn't your very first time in ASPI. I think you you came here two decades ago. Is it's that right?
2: Like twenty years ago for the ASPI conference in July.
4: Yeah. Wow. I mean, just uh, it's a credit to uh, long before my time at ASPE, but a credit to how long the institution's been going. And I, I hope that we are growing in impact in the US. Oh, I think so. Oh, excellent. Uh, Walter, you, you, you've just written a book, which hopefully is going to be, if it's not immediately available to uh, our listeners, will be available very soon. I managed to get hold of a copy on Kindle, so if, you, if you're out there looking, there is there are ways and means. So could you tell us just a couple of things about the, the book and why you chose to write it?
2: Well, the title is The Ark of a Covenant, uh, Israel, America and the Future of the Jewish People. And what I thought, I am a generalist on foreign policy. I'm not a Middle East specialist, certainly not an Israel specialist. But I thought that this small relationship, if we look at it really intensely, can illuminate a lot of the forces that drive American foreign policy generally. I say in the book that Israel occupies a speck on the map of the world, but a continent in the American mind. And so if you try to think through this issue and understand the politics of it, you actually get a pretty good picture of how the American people think about foreign policy. Fantastic. So I have been reading the book. I think as you
4: you acknowledge in the the preface, um, it's a longer book than you intended to write because once you got into it, there's so much to cover. I agree with that assessment what I've taken from it is that the U.S. understanding of its relationship with Israel isn't particularly well well grounded. Um, at least not many people understand the true history of the relationship. There are people who who frame the relationship in, in moral imperatives, and that can be quite unhelpful. There's people who play identity politics into it, and actually the way that left and right has identified Israel has changed over history, as you show in the book. But I think what really struck me was you also make a strategic case. If you strip away those factors, the moral imperatives and the and the identity elements, there is a strategic case for the U.S. relationship with Israel. Is, is, is that a fair assessment of your argument? And yeah. what is well, that case?
2: Actually, what I would say is that my argument is that the U.S.-Israel relationship has changed dramatically over the decades. People have this kind of picture in their heads that the U.S. and Israel have always been allies and that Israel has always depended on American protection Uh, If you really look at it, the Americans in the 1950s wanted nothing to do with Israel. President Kennedy was much more interested in preventing Israel from acquiring nuclear weapons than he was in developing a good relationship with it. It's really not until the 1970s that the U.S. and Israel start becoming aligned, and even then, it's, it's a slow process. What I found is that in all of these different decades, The way to understand how American presidents shaped the relationship with Israel was there were two elements to it. One was, what was their theory of the world? What did they see America's global interests as being? How did they see the Middle East as playing into those interests? And then how did they see a relationship with Israel as affecting our Middle East policy? And so that very cold-blooded Realpolitik calculation has always been there and I think remains there today. Then on the other hand, because Israel is such an emotional issue for so many people in the United States, both pro and anti, right? Israel is a way that presidents can signal to people about their foreign policy. So if Ronald Reagan wants to say, Ah, yay. America is back. I'm pro-Israel. You know, everybody hears that and sees it. If Obama says we Americans really need to rethink our role in the world. So I'm going to distance myself from Israel. This communicates. So it's, it's a, it's a mixture of political communication and realpolitik. That's fascinating, and it it's, it brings
4: to mind some um, examples I, I, I've come across of where uh, I think there is a degree of mythology about how we view relationships. I mean, I'd, many of the uh, the taxi drivers in Australia come from uh, South Asia, and uh, I remember being in a taxi in Australia recently where the uh, taxi driver was from India and was 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 trying to tell me that uh, Russia or the Soviet Union had always been India's best friend. Well, I actually think it's a slightly more checkered uh, history there. And I've heard people say that the US has always supported Taiwan because it's a democracy and obviously only became one in the 1980s. So fascinating parallels there. Maybe moving back to the to, to Israel, though, it, it does also, for me, evoke this this question, this term that we have in our culture at the moment of cancel culture. When I was at university in the UK, Shimon Peres gave a talk and there was a small group of people that said that was the wrong thing to do, that we, we shouldn't provide a platform to, uh, to, to Shimon Peres. What's your view of this deplatforming and cancel culture? Is it a relevant term? Does it ha- how, what's your reaction to that?
2: Well, certainly, if you look at the Israel debate, you have all kinds of people trying to cancel all kinds of other people. So we've had cases in the U.S., and I'm sure there have been cases in Australia, where somebody has invited a critic of Israel to speak on campus, and there have been groups that have tried to stop that. And in the same way, when sometimes somebody speaking for the government of Israel or speaking in a favorable way about Israel, people want to cancel that too. Uh, I'm, I'm one of these horrible people who thinks that actually... If somebody is making bad arguments, what you should do is make good arguments. And also, there's this tendency to think the only reason somebody could utter an opinion I disagree with is because they're a bad person. Um, And I don't know. I look back over my own life. My opinions have changed. I am you know, I'm 70 years old now. I was a fiery student radical at one point in my life. I've been more conservative than I, you know, I've, I've, I've changed my views. I don't think I've gotten better or worse. It was always me just trying to do the best I could to explain the world I was living in. I think it's okay to give other people the same space you would give yourself here. And again, If somebody, you know, there are people who want to make the argument that America is pro-Israel because this sinister Israel lobby controls American foreign policy. Well, the way to to deal with an argument like that is not to say, "Ooh, you're an ugly and vicious anti-Semite because that's not necessarily true and you don't know if it's true. Uh, What you say is, oh, really, why do you think that? What is your evidence? Well, what about this? What about that? And I think that's that's actually the way all of us should try to, to deal with these issues. That's a really good point. And you, it brings to mind, uh, you said you've revised some of your views.
4: I think there's a quote, I remember it's attributed to John Maynard Keynes that uh, where someone accused him of changing his view. And he said, yeah, when I get new evidence, I review my opinions, right. what do you do?
2: <laughs> well, you know, when I was writing uh, this book, I was well aware this is one of the most controversial topics around the US-Israel relationship. And I really didn't want to have the kind of book that would sort of make half its readers want to burn it and half of its readers think, "Oh, what a great hero!" So I did things like actually, I have a you know a number of very good friends in the U.S. who are uh, Muslim American intellectuals. Uh, some of them, you know, from Palestinian, Egyptian, others. And I asked them to go over the manuscript with me and give me suggestions if I was getting something wrong. And if you look at the blurbs, uh, they're on the Amazon page. If anybody wants to go to Kindle and uh, get a copy of the book, they're right there. You can see that I've got um, Arab American, Muslim American uh, blurbs for the book. And, and I've also had from very strong, conv- committed Zionists. So I've tried to write a book. That talks as best I can intelligently about a controversial subject. Some people can disagree with me, that's not a crime. I may have gotten it wrong, but I gave it my best shot to give a straight picture. And I've actually been heartened because the reviews of the book, and this is, you know, again, a very controversial topic in America. From the New York Times and the Washington Post, the New Republic, but from right-wing publications like Commentary, have been very positive. Mm. So, it's it's I think we still can have rational discussion about emotional foreign policy topics if we think hard about how to go about it in a reasonable way. That's an excellent point. And um,
4: there are some pretty big foreign policy topics uh, on the plate at the moment. As someone who's looked at U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy at large, where do you think Washington's gaze
2: is is uh, diverted at the moment? Well, I think it's directed primarily at China that these days the U.S. Uh, does, by and large, the American political class, so to speak, sees China as as the biggest long-term concern for American foreign policy. I don't see any desire for a war in China with China. You know, exactly the opposite. Uh, Americans aren't looking for a way to win a war with China. They're looking for a way to avoid a war with China while preserving the independence of countries on China's frontiers and preserving the peace in, in the region. Um, and hopefully at some point in the not too distant future, in Beijing people will come to the conclusion that that Deng Xiaoping had it right and peaceful rise is the smart path for China.
4: Well let's certainly hope so. Um you're obviously in Australia now so um for Australian listeners how high up the the list of priorities in Washington is Australia right now?
2: Australia is a country that for Americans is really very far away. I remember just how far away it was on my flight over here uh, but it's a country americans just instinctively like if you say to an american kid we're going to australia they get really happy and excited and australia for americans if you know is, is almost a canary in the coal mine if australia is telling us we don't feel secure to americans that's a, that's a sense that things are going badly wrong in the indo-pacific but i would have to say right now australia is one of many canaries that are singing this song if you go to japan of course if you go to taiwan if you go to the philippines to australia to india uh, you're going to hear a lot of concern and that i think that collective um, sense of fear and concerned that things might be headed in the wrong direction, which we do hear from Australia, we hear from everybody, and that really has attracted our attention.
4: Yes, it does feel like if if you are President Biden or, or you're, you're sitting in the foreign policy making circles in Washington, there is a tremendous amount to draw your attention at the moment, and of course, part of that is directed to to Europe uh, and, uh, and and what's going on with Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. Maybe Ukraine is able to follow the example of Israel in the late 1940s and uh, defeat the, uh, the Goliath that is attacking it. Let, let's let's hope so. But how do you feel? Uh, is there a consensus of views in Washington about what to do about Ukraine and
2: how that's going to turn out? Well, there's certainly a, a very strong consensus that we want to help Ukraine uh, and that that. There's not a lot of doubt in, in Washington that if you're trying to ask who's right and who's wrong, Ukraine is right and Russia is wrong. Uh, and at the same time, which side does America want to win? The answer is Ukraine. Then, and then it gets a little trickier. Uh, does America want to risk a nuclear war with Russia in order to help Ukraine? Well, that's a much harder conversation to have, and you can find a lot of divergence. But then also, um, there's a sense, too, that the Ukrainians, I think the Ukrainians have surprised everyone. I've been to Ukraine many times. Actually, not as many times as I've been to Australia. (laughs) But I've been to Ukraine a number of times, including in 1990, when it was still part of the Soviet Union. I drove across Ukraine uh, from the Far East to the Far West and really saw a good deal of, of the country. Most observers didn't think that the Ukrainian army would put up this kind of a fight or that the Ukrainian government could work as effectively as it has. And that's inspired people. You know, when you see a, a nation that's invaded and it rallies and it's really doing, uh, doing everything it can to, to survive, it makes people want to help it.
4: Yes. No, I mean, I, I, I think there is, Tremendous public sympathy and and support for for Ukraine, and um, that's evident here in in Australia uh, as well. Despite the public sympathy here in in Australia, and I was in the UK recently, and Ukrainian flags are flying everywhere, of course there are around the world different views uh, of Ukraine and what's happening there. Do you have any, any sense on where global opinion is moving on Ukraine?
2: You know, that's uh, that's one of the things I think those of us in the kind of Western bubble, so to speak, have a hard time understanding. But I look at Brazil and we, you know, Lula and Bolsonaro agree on almost nothing, but both of them kind of lean toward Russia rather than toward Ukraine. Uh, And both of them are deeply skeptical of the West's attitudes toward the conflict. You go to India and you'll hear the same thing from people who share our concerns about China, who have a very different view of what's happening in Ukraine. And I think we in the, in the quote West, and I don't know, when you're in Australia, these words lose all their meaning. Are we the global North, the global West? Where the heck are we right now? But... What people often refer to as the global South is probably more alienated from the quote rules based world order than I've seen in many years. I was at uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos a couple of weeks ago and heard the secretary General of the United Nations talk about about the enormous gap and this this really worries me. I think we need to think a lot harder and a lot deeper. You know, you think about COVID came and the rich countries did a lot to protect their citizens, whether it was vaccines, whether it was support for their industries, payments to the unemployed who who lost their jobs. Poor countries didn't get this. And maybe some vaccines, but you have a country like Thailand, say, where what a high percentage of its GDP comes from tourism. And there's no tourism for three years. Um, the world order did not respond in a constructive way to the needs of people uh, around the world under COVID. Again, with the Ukraine conflict, when prices of fertilizer and food and fuel have been very high, rich countries have taken care of their own. They have not done much for the poor. Now, you can argue, and I think it's reasonable to say that Uh, It's not clear why an American taxpayer should send money to Nigeria where perhaps it might be stolen. uh, The corruption might be high. You can see all of these arguments. But nevertheless, if we're going to talk about a world order, we have to think a bit harder about how it benefits people at all levels of society in all parts of the world.
4: Absolutely, we'll have to to stop very soon. But I was going to squeeze in just one final short question, which is: um, I think one of the things that binds the the U.S. and the Australian people is this sense of optimism about the future. I come from Europe, and I'm you know to perhaps inherit that European pessimism. But um, is there are there grounds to be optimistic about the future? You've been studying um, world affairs for a long time. How dangerous a period is this, and
2: is, is there grounds for hope? We're in a very dangerous period. I I think we should not underestimate this. And it's not just in Ukraine that a mistake or a poor move could lead to war. But um, fundamentally, I really am an optimist. I think that what we're going through right now is, you know, it's cliche almost to say we're having the information revolution, but we don't think enough about what that means. The industrial revolution uh, transformed the world. Every institution from the family to the religious denomination to the state to the firm has been upended. By the Industrial Revolution. The same thing is happening in the Information Revolution. The Industrial Revolution is making humanity unimaginably rich compared to the past. The average person today in a country like Australia or America lives better than Louis XIV in the Palace of Versailles. We have nicer clothes. We have much better dentists. We have, you know, everything is so much better in those ways. The Information Revolution, I think, is going to unlock even greater productivity and make us as rich in services as we are in goods that change is going to to elevate people all over the world but it's not going to come easy and we're going to see the same sorts of stresses and upheavals that the industrial revolution has brought so i'm an optimist but also a realist
4: what a great point to, uh, to end our discussion on. Walter, enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Thank you for coming to ASPE and everybody should go out and buy your book. Thank you. On Kindle.
0: That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.